This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. We learned the extent of how devastating COVID-19 has been for Ontario's long-term care homes. In a surprise data release, the provincial PCs revealed the actual numbers around COVID-19 related deaths in nursing homes. To date, there are getting close to 200 outbreaks in Ontario long-term care homes, and that number continues to rise. Five homes in Toronto alone have recorded more than 20 related deaths, and four facilities in the province have more than 100 residents who've tested positive for COVID-19. While filling in for Libby Snymer on Monday, I was joined by our Zoomer squad to discuss the tragic situation. Peter Mugrich, senior editor at Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, vice president at Zoomer Media, and Marissa Lennox, chief policy officer at CARP, a new vision of aging. I think that the numbers we saw today are deeply troubling. Um, when you look at what percentage of deaths in Ontario, obviously we heard Dr. Tam say 50% of deaths in long-term care, sorry, deaths in Canada have been in long-term care homes. When you look at numbers in Ontario, it's actually close to 80% of deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's deeply troubling, um, but not um, something that was necessarily um, unexpected. We need to remember that a lot of the incidents we're seeing in these homes are not directly related to homes being overwhelmed because of COVID, but because of challenges that existed long before and that will persist if no action is, t- is taken. David, to you, what, what are we to make of these numbers? Well, I echo uh, Marissa's comment. I don't think it's terribly surprising. And I think the issue that's going to emerge loud and clear is what percentage of those deaths could have been prevented by having better resources in those facilities. If you're saying that older people are going to be disproportionately affected, that's true of the quote-unquote regular flu. If you're saying there's going to be fatalities every flu season and they are going to be disproportionately among older people, okay, but is the system at least, you know, at functioning at maximum level to prevent what it can prevent? Now we're seeing that this is not true. And I think that's where the outrage is, and that's where the uh, pressure's got to be on reforming this. So at least if we're we're operating, we're doing it at the highest functioning rate we can, knowing, you know, some people are going to, old people are going to be, older people are going to be affected more, but at least let us do everything we can. But when we see all these deficiencies in the system, that's where uh, I think you're going to see a lot of uh, anger, and you're already starting to see that. Having said that about the homes that, there are outbreaks. There are a number of homes where there are no outbreaks. Mm-hmm. And I think afterwards it'll be interesting to, uh, you know, uh, evaluate what those homes did to prevent outbreaks, why they did so well, and apply those lessons to <laughs> the rest of the homes that didn't do well, you know. And, and so it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a little bit of, um, you know, distance from the pandemic where we can look back and, and you know, talk to the homes, talk to the people who ran those homes that had, 
you know, no outbreaks and see what they do. That's an interesting observation, Peter. Do you do you think, Marissa, it's a lot more than luck that there are homes, the majority of homes in the province still do not have an outbreak? Mm-hmm. Is it is it because of the difference in the way these various homes are operated? Dead right. I think that it's unequivocal that a lot of homes operate differently. And um, that speaks to sort of the regulatory structure that exists in Ontario, how we're monitoring these homes, what we expect of these homes. Some homes are profitable, others are not. Does that speak to how well staffed they are? In some cases, it does. Some are adequately staffed, some are not. Some spend more on food, some do not. Um, Some care more for their patients than others. Uh, Some homes are better maintained than others. Um, and so these things, I think, are, you know, unfortunate realities of long-term care homes. Remember, many are for-profit, some are municipal, some are not-for-profit. There does seem to be a trend that for-profit homes, and some of the studies that have been done, have performed less well than others. Um, so I think all of these things will be examined after the fact and ought to be. What can be done to curb the spread of COVID-19 now that it's in these homes? Is there anything that they can be doing at the moment? Well, I think I think globally, uh, no, because I think it's case by case. And what resources do they have? We're, we're seeing everything from sending in the army to sending in volunteers. So I don't want to be pontificating from a distance with you know a sweeping statement that affects all of these homes. What I would like to point out, though, is let's say there was no COVID-19. You still have a population, by definition, whose health is compromised, who are more prone to disease and particularly infection in a, in a quote-unquote regular year uh, without, without COVID-19. Now you take a look at these facilities and say, I got a facility where maybe there's one shower for every 20 people. Well, that's going to be a hotbed of infection. That's going to be a place that's difficult to control uh, germs and infection of any kind. So we have to look at the facilities. Now, i got a place that's got enough staff to, you know, uh, supervise people and test residents. Now, i got another place that doesn't have enough staff. So you, you really have to take a look at what do we need to do to prevent uh, any disease. Are we maximized for our ability to control and prevent any rapid spreading, knowing that the population, before you even start, when you open your doors in the morning, you're dealing with a population that is at risk. And clearly, the system is not up to that job. David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. So how are you managing after nearly two months of staying at home during COVID-19? A new Angus Reid poll out this past week suggests half of Canadians have had a worsening in their mental well-being over the COVID-19 pandemic. One in 10 say it's worsened a lot. Joining me on Monday to discuss, Dr. Steve Jordans, professor of psychology at University of Toronto Scarborough, and relationship and parenting expert, Dr. Natasha Sharma. It's probably one of the uh, you know, most significant forms of stress that we here in Canada could be exposed to. Uh, we have a very, for the most part, enjoy a, a relatively stable um, lifestyle and a very um, sort of stable way of living. So to experience this is not in our normal, it's not the norm for us. So 
that presents a really big stress. This is one of the most significant stressors probably most the majority of Canadians will have experienced uh, ever or in at least a long time. So anytime there's uh, an external stressor uh, of, of this kind of magnitude, we're going to have a stress response. Uh, and certainly our mental health and our financial health and sort of the, the stability of how we live in our and the uncertainty of our future all qualifies as a very large stressor. So everyone is having a stress response. That's clear. But how and to what extent is, of course, different. And that's what we see from uh, the Angus Reid study is that even though we're all being exposed to the same stressor because of our individual circumstances and our individual uh, personalities and circumstance um, uh, makeup, we're all responding. We're not responding necessarily in the same way. Dr. Jordans, you may not be able to improve your financial situation at the moment, but what can you do to improve your mental health or what kind of help can you reach out for? Yeah. Um, so, so a couple of options there. I mean, one of the things is that w- you can get into this negative spiral where your negative thoughts, your worries um, kind of feed your, your body tension, which creates that fight or flight reflex, which makes you more worried. So you can have this mind-body negative spiral going, but you can get into that spiral and you can take control of your mind. Uh, I actually created a short free course on Coursera.org. Uh, where I teach people some of the, the tools they could use. But it can be as ver- as simple as find those things in your life that really grab your mind and consume you, something that when you're doing it, that's all you're thinking of, and start thinking of that as a way to escape from your worries and stresses. And, you know, you're going to have to deal with that anxiety at times, but at other times you have to get away from it. And so if you can find what that thing is and schedule that into your day to get a break every now and then. That's one example of a very simple thing you can do. Can you give us an example of, of what that might look like? Well, you know, in my case, for example, I, I, I play in a band and I always wanted to learn how to use GarageBand to get songs out of my head. Uh, I've learned how to do that now. And when I'm in the basement working on a song on GarageBand, there's nothing else in my life at that time. Right. That is where my head is. And so that'll be different for every person. Um, but just becoming a little mindful and realizing, oh, my, my thoughts are really negative right now and there's really nothing I can do. So can I sort of change the channel on my mind? And you can do that by exposing yourself to, to things that bring your mind somewhere else. Uh, and, and that's the trick, is, is to recognize what those things are and then to start to use them strategically. Dr. Sharma, would you like to add to that concept? Because certainly diversion takes us away from the thoughts of anxiety and worry. Absolutely. I mean, I agree with that. It's, it's not always possible to eliminate the entire, uh, you know, overall feeling. Uh, but I think, yes, what we need to do is focus on the aspects of our lives that we really uh, derive joy from. And everyone is, oh, many people probably still have some area of their life that they can enjoy and that they feel positive um, when they're engaging in. Um, I created a guided journal, the Kindness Journal, which is actually meant for people to fill out at the end of the day. And they reflect on what they're gra- grateful for about the day, things that they enjoyed, and actually tie into what Dr. Steve said. There's a mindfulness exercise there. It's mindfulness and sort of connecting more deeply to a very positive experience in your day or in your life is very powerful. And when it's practiced uh, repeatedly, can actually really shift and rewire um, how a person feels and, and, and their sort of outlook on life. 
relationship and parenting expert Dr. Natasha Sharma and Dr. Steve Jordans, professor of psychology at University of Toronto Scarborough. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It was a first in Canadian history, a virtual sitting of the House of Commons, and it took place this past Tuesday. But is democracy being served, and is there enough oversight? Some observers say no. And what about the Conservatives? Last week was not a good one for outgoing leader Andrew Scheer, and so some want to push ahead with electing a new permanent leader. Here in the capital of Ontario, the governing PCs unveiled their plan for reopening the economy. Fightback's Tuesday strategy panel discussed these issues and more during their visit with Libby Snymer. John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Charles Bird, managing principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto. And Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village. I think that uh, by and large, Ontario is taking a more risk-based approach to opening the economy and saying, you know, certain things have to be in place where uh, we can monitor, tra- test and, and trace before we can think about opening up uh, in, a broader, in a broader way. And so, you know, it does, I think it does put pressure on, um, you know, public health and the systems within the province to be able to do the testing and the, the tracing and the contact tracing. Um, and so that has to be uh, a key piece of infrastructure that needs to be available for us to reopen. Um, and so, it, yeah, it, 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 what we see in Quebec, I think, is, is a riskier strategy. Um, it, it's not without precedent, certainly, you know, in the European countries, particularly Sweden, they took this approach. So, but, but it goes without saying that Ontario's approach is, is, is much more uh, risk averse. Charles, I'm assuming that you have clients who are kind of looking at the same thing and trying to make sense of it and how it applies for them. How's that going? Um, it's, it's going well. I mean, it's a sea of programs that have been coming out in rapid fire succession from the federal government and the provinces. So a lot of what we're doing is just trying to stay in real time in terms of what's on the table. In the case of Karen and Variety Village, uh, it was just a week ago that the federal government announced a $350 million aid package for charitable organizations. And I believe uh, not-for-profits and charities will also be covered by the rent release relief provisions that were announced last Thursday. As for um, the Ontario government's announcement, by his own admission, the, the Premier and his government are struggling to deal with this, and there's been some frustration along the way. And testing remains the, the big problem, because a big part of putting our economy back to work is this whole notion of testing, tracing, and isolating. And at the moment, the problem is capacity, uh, specifically within our provincial labs. Uh, we need to be close to 30,000 tests a day. Public Health Ontario alone is just doing 3,000, and uh, they're just having a very difficult time of it. And they're not alone in that. A number of jurisdictions are facing similar problems. Uh, John, is there enough in that announcement for your clients to be planning? Well, I think like like Karen was saying uh, earlier, uh, Libby, that is, um, I, I think people are happy, businesses are happy that there's a discussion about that. I think once the, the Premier announced that there was a recovery committee made up of uh, of a number of senior cabinet ministers led by Minister Rod Phillips, 
um, I think people were generally sort of, you know, buoyed by the fact that, okay, they're thinking about recovery, and, and, and they received a whole bunch of submissions, as you heard from uh, from the minister yesterday in, in the press conference, uh, and that will continue. The consulting will continue with uh, with businesses and chambers, and, and I think that gives some businesses a, a light at the end of the tunnel to say that, okay, well, at least we're discussing how to come back and, and how does that look like. And I think that the premier was smart to be able to sort of lay the foundation of what a, a recovery would look like, sort of the fundamentals of of, of, you know, we want make sure we want to make sure that businesses have the the necessary processes in place to ensure that if if they open up, that there's a proper physical distancing and, and so forth. And then the next level and the next level, I think it was far more measured than, of course, what we what we heard from from Premier Legault. Uh, interesting that they both had the announcement one after each other, and one was far more aggressive in their recovery plan than than Ontario's. Um, but I also think too, Libby, it's worth noting that this is where I think federal-provincial relations will be strained. Uh, it, we've seen a, a, a huge amount of cooperation up until now, and, and continuing, quite frankly. But what we're seeing, though, and what we're going to see is provinces uh, on their own, uh, you know, determine how best to bring their provinces back into into recovery. And we're seeing some. Uh, in the, uh, out east, saying that they're going to be able to open up more. We, we heard from from Premier Legault saying that he was going to open up and have schools opened up um, uh, far more aggressively than here in Ontario. So, and this is where I think the Prime Minister is going to get asked: Is there going to be a national strategy to ensure that the recovery across the board is somewhat more uniformed? And the answer is that is is no, because every province is going to have their own issues to deal with, and some are way ahead of the others. BC, one who who kind of dealt with this issue a lot earlier than, than a lot of the other provinces. So they're seeing a bit more of an issue. So I think that's going to be an interesting dilemma. Uh, but I do think that the Premier handled it well. I think that he laid the foundation, and the next stage is going to be probably dates once he sees the, the curve flattening out a bit more. John Capobianco, Charles Byrd, and Karen Stintz fight back's Tuesday strategy panel. It was on Wednesday. It was decided by the organizing members of the Conservative Party leadership to reopen the campaign and accept ballots until August 21st, with the decision expected soon after. This is the best of fight back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. More now on the plans to reopen the Ontario economy and how and when it will happen. When Premier Doug Ford released details on Monday, he and his ministers continued to repeat this is a roadmap, not a calendar. Libby was joined on Tuesday by Ryan Malot, Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and Ontario's Finance Minister, Rod Phillips. When we open up, we're going to do it in a staged way. We're going to, we're going to move forward with, with a set of businesses and other services that people need um, for a two to four week period because we need that two to four week period for the public health people to be able to judge um, you know, the, the, the incubation period for the disease is, is two weeks, so they need to be able to judge our progress at each step along the way so that there would be a set of criteria uh, that, that people would know uh, what we were measuring and then that we would open up in a staged process um, where we would bring online some of the businesses that could be done uh, more safely uh, and, and, and then open another setup uh, a little further along uh, based on making sure that we were making progress in a really careful way and a really safe way, but also bring businesses back as quick as we can. In terms of the benchmarks, we know that you need a at least a two-week period, a two- to four-week period between these, but uh, is it possible to get any more specific benchmarks, like if what sure. percentage in drops, just to give people an idea? Yeah, no, absolutely. So 
So there really are four, um, we'll call them triggers, if you want, from a health perspective that we need to make sure are in place. And and they're all important, but I'll say the one that people are going to be watching the most closely is just the case levels. And so we need to see case levels decline. And this, of course, was was developed with the chief medical officer, with with his colleagues across the province, and as well with uh, with with the science community. So so you know we're, cur- we're currently seeing you know 500 cases in some cases a day of new cases, and we need to see that case rate be declining. Everybody is looking to the day when we have a vaccine. So now there's also a lot of talk about whether the vaccines should be mandatory before people can go back to work. Back to, uh, do you have a view on that? That's a great question. I don't. I got to be honest. <laughs> I've been thinking about a lot of things, but I haven't thought. I haven't thought that through. I, I am. I'm realistic. I think about the timeframes for a vaccine, and this is just listening to experts and professionals. Um, that that you know the, that I think we we are going to have to go through several stages, as you talked about. We have that three step process. We want to be well into the recovery phase, but we all know that things are going to have to be operating differently for a time period until we have widespread immunity. And uh, that is most likely going to come from a vaccine. But uh, you've asked a good question. And uh, that's that's one that we have uh, at least, I think, uh, 12 to 18 months to think about the answer to. Let's bring in Ryan Mello, the Director of Provincial Affairs at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. What do you think of what the finance minister and the premier have been saying? Is what they're saying enough for your members to start planning on how to come back and on, more importantly, how they can last until they come back. So I, I think it's encouraging that we've we've reached a point in this whole process where we're finally talking about reopening. That is certainly a good sign. Uh, that being said, uh, it it is very much a framework and, and as such lacks a lot of details that uh, our members are really looking for, uh, especially when it comes to uh, timelines and dates about when they can be open, what kinds of businesses would be included uh, in the phases, and for those that are included, what is it exactly they're reopening to? Are we talking about reopening the store sort of as normal? Are we talking about reopening the store with you know mandatory PPE for employees or limited number of customers, uh, at modified operations like sort of a curbside pickup only? So uh, as good as it is, as good as it is to be talking about it, there are still a lot of unanswered questions that business owners are looking for before they can really. Uh, move on on getting ready for reopening. The consumers are just as cash-strapped as, as anyone else. I mean, the business, even if it's allowed to come back, who's going to have money to spend? Well, and that's, that's a major, major concern. And also, I think an indicator, too, uh, and also pressing on the need to have defined timelines, um, but the economic recovery is not going to be quick. Um, not only are, are the phases going to uh, keep things slow and steady. And again, we're responding to a health crisis. That's important. But you're right, consumer. I mean, there's a lot of people who are uh, currently on the, the uh, CERB benefit. Um, there's a lot of people who, you know, aren't, aren't making their full salaries, if any salary at all. Um, and that's going to put a damper on consumer spending that's going to be felt throughout the small business economy. When these businesses do finally open, please get out there and, and visit your local favorites. Um, they, they desperately miss you as much as you miss them. Uh, and on the government side of things, um, you know, daily updates, but the sooner that we can get a timeline to plan for reopening, the better. Ryan Malo, Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and Ontario Finance Minister Rod Phillips. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Pat in Toronto called to say he figures there are a lot of people who wish they had taken their loved ones out of long-term care before nursing homes were locked down. I have a good friend, and what he did was take his elderly relative out of the home and brought him to his own house. And I think people, if we had this situation again, I think a lot of people would do that. How are they doing? How are the two of them doing? Just totally well. Other than, you know, he's not used to having the older person in the house, but she's doing very well. That's uh, good to hear. And uh, it's a way to avoid it. I mean, I guess the question is, how many people, if they had that chance to go back right now, would they go back and say, yes, I'll take my, my aged parents and bring them home? for the next three months. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Annette in Etobicoke, who at 85 says she's doing her best to stay well at home. I've been in my home home since 1956, so I try and manage by myself. Um, my daughters all live far away. Um, I have someone bring in my groceries, which was very hard to get started because I couldn't find anybody. Nobody would answer the phones. So it was hard. Um, I haven't driven my car in six weeks. So I was lucky enough also to get my insurance canceled for till September. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.